Welcome to the Servant Leadership Online Training Summit, 10 Days to Better Relationships and Results, brought to you by Ken Blanchard, Barrett Kohler Publishers, and Conscious Marketer. Learn more at ServantLeadershipSummit.com. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to Peter Senge, a senior lecturer in leadership and sustainability at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the author of the widely acclaimed book, The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. Peter has been named one of the 24 people who had the greatest influence on business strategy over the last 100 years by Journal of Business Strategy. He has lectured extensively throughout the world, translating the abstract ideas of systems theory into tools to better understand economic and organizational change. Peter's work articulates a cornerstone position of human values in the workplace, namely that vision, purpose, reflectiveness, and systems thinking are essential if organizations are to realize their potential. Now, please welcome Peter Senge. Welcome back to the Servant Leadership Online Training Summit. I'm Richard Tobinger. I'm the founder of Conscious Marketer and the co-host and co-producer for the event. For our next presenter, we're going to be talking with Peter Senge. And today, Peter is going to be sharing more about systems thinking, um, some about his books. And he's, we're going to be talking about the evolution and impact of servant leadership over the years. Welcome, Peter, to, uh, and thank you for, for coming on uh, our summit today. My pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Uh, and we're, we're starting with uh, asking all of our speakers, you know, why is servant leadership so important in the world? Can you uh, share your perspective on that question? Well, first off, I think it's been important forever. I think when Bob Greenleaf first articulated it, and particularly the way he articulated it in the background and history and context, very few people know, you know, he had a career at AT&T. Right. The old AT&T long ago when was a, typically called the, the long lines business. But it was an extraordinarily service-oriented enterprise. I think that's what made AT&T what it was. And Greenleaf had worked there for, I think, 25 years or so. Right. And had the benefit to also work with a few people who he considered quite exemplary as leaders. Many of them, uh, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, had actually come out of the military. Right. Uh, and, and so and I think you find these ideas kind of deeply woven into different military organizations around the world. And it was, I once asked a Marine, retired Marine Colonel, why? And he had the most simple practical answer. He said, well, we've just always found that when people's lives are on the line, yep. if they don't believe their commanding officer is committed to their well-being, they behave in very erratic ways. Right. <laughs> Makes so, sense. You might say this has always been important. And I think one of the things that Greenleaf did very well is he touched deep uh, resonant courts when he first presented this. So that you might say this is a, an aspect of timeless wisdom, perennial philosophy. It's not a new idea. It just keeps coming, coming back and needs yeah. to be articulated, obviously in new ways that connect to a contemporary setting. I think Bob Greenleaf did that very well. I think the fact that he was coming out of the business world really helped a ton. Now, yeah. like a lot of people don't even know that, you know, they know him as a Quaker and this guy with this, you know, in some sense, very religious point of view, you could call it a religious point of view. Yeah. But I think what he was really coming from was, you know, what I was, that Marine Colonel pointed out, the, the deeply pragmatic aspect right. of 
of being really committed to the well-being of the people you quote lead or have responsibility for. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that you know times are always changing. Um, so each of us can probably make up a little different story today than we would have even ten years ago right. as to why this is so timely. For me, it, its its relevance has always come from first the complexity of the issues we face. That's not just the last few years. That's the yeah. last. I would say 30, 50 years, you know, the, the kind of end of the industrial age and the extraordinary industrial growth dynamic around the world, uh, which is still going on, of course. It hasn't yeah. ended. It's just, you know, we're gradually f transcending out of that age. It's produced enormous benefits, but it's produced enormous harm. And today, of course, people are very tuned into the extraordinary inequity that it has produced, as well as the extraordinary ecological imbalances that it has produced. And those two are always connected. Poor people always suffer most right. when there's resource scarcity or environmental stress. So for me, it all started with this uh, kind of transcendent idea that's been there for me throughout uh, my life and work, which is that we really face issues that are vastly more complex than we're prepared for, period. Right. You know, we don't understand them. We, we have very superficial, often very simplistic, often even very, uh, you know, um, polemical ways yeah. of approaching these things, as opposed to really embracing the complexity. Well along the way, in the original book, The Leader is Servant, or long essay that Bob Greenleaf worked, he actually starts talking about complexity. Right. People even get to that point, because it's not like the headline, servant leadership. But he makes the argument there, which I would say is as timely today as ever that when you're dealing with issues about which it's naive and potentially dangerous to have people in positions of authority who believe they have the answer, right? it's a real problem. Yeah. And I think we have that even more so today than any time I can remember. We've had it. It's always been a problem. And conversely, you say, well, what's the difference? We don't, aren't leaders supposed to be people who you know, have the answer and tell people what to do? I mean, that's kind of like right. the, the mainstream mythos about leadership. But, you know, Greenleaf says, you know, no. You know, we need people who are deeply committed to a purpose, see themselves as serving a yeah. larger purpose, and who are really serving the people they, quote, lead, yeah. so that they can be vehicles for cultivating collective intelligence around issues for which no one individual sees enough. Well, that seems to be like it might have been a, a big theme of your, of your, of your book, uh, The Necessary Revolution. And you, you're obviously deeply committed to uh, sustainability, environmental sustainability. Can you share a little bit about w why you wrote that book and what's inside that one? Well, that one was, most of the books, you know, they're a long time in coming. And it took us about 10 years to organize the first consortium focused on sustainability. Going back, this was also all businesses. The work mm -hmm. started the organizing work in the late 1990s. Um, but it really was kind of waiting for an opportunity. I mean, that time the opportunity was very simple. We felt at that point there was a beginning of a critical mass of businesses, mainstream, yeah. uh, mostly US-based, but yeah. Western-based businesses who saw social and environmental issues. It's, sustainability is not just environmental. That's the whole point. You know, We have a way of living that's not sustainable. Right. The, the, the primary breakdowns will not be ecological. You right. might say the ecological ones are in the background. What comes into the foreground is conflict, wars, you know, again, this concentration of inequity and all the consequences for social attitudes that come from that and so on. Um, so um, we saw 
enough companies starting to realize that this was not about philanthropy. This was not about their image. This was not about marketing in the sense of making themselves look good. This was strategic. It would right. shape the future of their industries and their businesses. Right. And because it was long-term and because it was so amorphous, easy to ignore. Yeah. So we've been organizing that group and watching it kind of develop. It's eventually morphed into more focus groups because it was really on a, the general topic of the unsustainability and how do we see sustainability becoming strategic from a business standpoint. Right. Eventually we had the Sustainable Food Lab, Sustainable Apparel Coalition, different industry groups started to form, which was needed because yeah. then they could go deep on very well-defined issues. Again, always with that pragmatic idea that this is not do-gooderism. Yeah. This is literally about the future of our field. I'll never forget the CEO of Unilever said it so bluntly to me in the about 96 or 97. He said, if there aren't fundamental changes in the world's food industries, we just won't have businesses worth being in. Right. In two to three decades. So again, it wasn't philanthropy. Yeah. And we knew then that there was a very small minority who saw that. Yeah. Today, that small minority is probably a somewhat bigger minority, but it's mm -hmm. still a minority. Yeah. So that's the kind of genesis of that and uh, that sustainable soul society for organization learning sustainability consortium lasted for about seven, eight years. It was founded by Nike and Shell and Ford uh, and uh, 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 Harley Davidson and Hewlett Packard and, you know, businesses, again, who are starting to see this. Um, and uh, now, as I say, it's, it's kind of evolved into subsequent forms. Yeah. So yeah, that book has a lot of big names in it, DuPont, GE, yeah. and um, there, there's a lot of great examples of how, they, how they're putting it into practice, and it's becoming a competitive advantage, actually. Yes. Um, well, they're businesses. So as I say, the first imperative is pragmatic. Yeah. So survival and competitive advantage, well, these are the two things that are, and they should be, at the heart of what makes uh, good strategic thinking in business. What, how do you define a servant leadership? What does it mean to be a servant leadership for you? Well, I mean, since I first read Bob Greenleaf's book, well, I remember, I remember a particular, I think I was rereading, I think I'd been introduced to it, but I really read it seriously. This was before it was actually published. It's been published a few different times. So I think this was a version of his original essay, I think was first released in the early 70s. Okay. Um, and I had encountered him because I had friends at AT&T who knew him and he had a kind of a strong almost cult-like following within AT&T. Not in a bad sense, but the sense of people who really thought these are ideas that have made our enterprise what it is, but it's easy to forget. Right. And we want to keep it alive and keep nurturing it. So um, to me, it's as easy to recall when I first started reading it uh, seriously. And that actually was coincident with working with a good friend named Joseph Jaworski, who was founding something called the American Leadership Forum. Mm -hmm. And that has been going now for over 30 years. And, uh, and, and Joe had a few kind of cornerstone teachers. Uh, Greenleaf was one. And, you know, so for me, I always go back to what I recall sitting on an airplane, you know, some nighttime flight, reading this essay seriously for the first time. And what he basically said, you know, to be a servant leadership is to believe that, you know, who you serve is first and foremost the people you, quote, lead what I was saying before, you know, that, so if you think of, you know, leadership in a hierarchical sense, um, you know, the people quote, below you are actually the people you serve. And you can only do that when you're also serving a larger purpose. So those two kind of cornerstones always were my anchor. Um, 
So I've always defined servant leadership as people who kind of lead through service in that, in that sense. And for whom their concept of being a leader, and Greenleaf is very articulate about this, is not primarily based on power or um, obviously ego or my ideas or my agenda or my strategy and so on and so forth, but you know, serving this larger purpose. It's a very simple idea. Uh, and I think it's quite timeless. What I think I appreciate today and I didn't appreciate when I first started reading it is that those are actually universal ideas. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time in China in the last 20 years in the Confucian tradition. Right. The traditional, not the contemporary, but, you know, I go back, you know, over 2,500 years. Why is the Confucian tradition so influential throughout Eastern Asia, not just China? It kind of was the glue from a philosophical standpoint that was common to what today would be Korea and Japan and China. And, and it, it really was a similar ideas. They say in the Confucian tradition to become a leader, you must first become a human being. Yeah. And there's deep kind of cultivation practice. That would be the term that you would use in China. Uh, what it means to grow as a leader is to be committed to this deep process of cultivation, starting with the ability just to see because our seeing, our perception is so naturally biased. Yeah. The problem is not that, it, we're always biased. There's no right. such thing as an unbiased observer. The problem is we're usually paying very little attention to our biases. Right. We're so caught up in our own point of view that we're not reflecting in any way on how our own point of view is a product of our history, our beliefs, our values, all that stuff. And it's anything but objective. There's no such thing as an objective point of view. Even in science, it doesn't exist. Um, so um, I think what I appreciate today more than then uh, is that this is actually quite a universal set of ideas. And I say what Greenleaf did beautifully is, is touch chords yeah. that resonated in all kinds of different traditions. Yeah. You uh, did your degree at MIT, and there you kind of, your mentor was a man named Jay Forster. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the impact he had on your life and a little bit about him? Because that's a pretty interesting mentor to have. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they always say, you know, one of the great gifts in life is the gift of the teachers you've had. And uh, I've been extremely fortunate in that regard. Jay, uh, Jay is an engineer's engineer, uh, uh, quite famous in the engineering world. He uh, invented radar, developed at MIT the first operating radar in 1942 to 44, actually installed that first operating radar on MacArthur's flagship right. in combat. They got <laughs> torpedoed. Wow. <laughs> oh, yes. Fortunately, the, the ship didn't sink. Um, uh, and after the war was over, and he was, I think, like 32 or 33 years old, <laughs> already had done this amazing thing. He had this idea of general purpose digital computation. Right. So in the period after the war, from about 46 to 52 or 53, he and a team of MIT graduate students developed the first general purpose digital computers. Right. He invented core memory, which was the first big technical breakthrough that led to a general purpose digital computation. Uh, there's a whole floor of the Smithsonian History of Science and Technology Museum in Washington <laughs> now devoted to this project. It's right. very freaky, by the way, to go there and see all these handwritten notes, and you recognize the writing right away. But of course, what you remember is all it was always in red, and it was always <laughs> written all over some paper you'd given him. Anyhow, so uh, uh, IBM was their contractor. That's how IBM got in the computer business. It yep. was international business machines. 
and IBM Gotten Computers by being the contractor that built the first 28 of these machines. They were all installed to coordinate uh, the first uh, national air, uh, North American air defense system. Mm -hmm. So there was, again, very, very practical purpose behind all this. So, and, but Jay's passion was always understanding systems. So he right. was my mentor way after all this had happened. He, he founded the field at MIT we call system dynamics. Right. So um, I worked closely with Jay after being a graduate student. I worked closely for another 10 years or so. And yeah, he was... He's quite, he was a tough mentor, but not in a harsh sense, but just in, we used to joke, you know, you finally pleased him because he stopped criticizing you. Right. <laughs> you know, he just lived in a very, and again, it wasn't abusive. It was just such high standards. Right. Of course, that's one of the things you really appreciate. You know, what makes a teacher a teacher, of course, is that a person has standards and those standards eventually shape you. So your book, The Fifth Discipline, has kind of become one of the seminal books on kind of the creating a learning organization. You've published a lot of add-on books and work workbooks and things since yeah. then. Can you just share a little bit about uh, what's changed since you initially wrote that book and how are, how are learning organizations and servant leadership actually connected in some way? Well, um, I think the basic idea, which I certainly didn't originate, many other people have written similar things, but probably the fifth discipline helped popularize, uh, that the source of competitive advantage, if you use that language, for a business is ultimately in the relative ability of one business to learn a little faster than its competitors. Right. So if we put it in the frame of, com uh, of, of the competition amongst businesses, that kind of has become an idea that I think has kind of moved into the mainstream. Yeah. So in that sense, again, learning is not you know, just a romantic idea, right. terribly, terribly practical. Yeah. Now, how much different businesses or different business organizations have kind of internalized, you might say, the, the cultural message, which is, yeah, you can say you want to learn, but do you really create a work environment, a work culture that's about taking risks, supporting one another, building effective teams, you know, really having a strong stretch goal but having a lot of ability to kind of really inquire into the gap, you know, between where we are today and where we're trying to go. Um, then I think you see organizations are all over the map yeah. and some are quite good. A lot, again, again, a lot of those basic ideas I think are now widely accepted. The part that's always the hardest to assess is, you know, as, as kind of people coming out of the engineering tradition, we always had a strong focus on tools and methods. Right. And so the fifth discipline and then all the subsequent field books and, you know, how to do this here and there and stories and practical examples and all that kind of stuff that you were referring to. You know, they're all built around uh, a weave of tools and methods and practices. And, and there, you know, I think you'll, um, undoubtedly you'd find organizations all over the map. To what extent do they have any kind of a practice of regular reflection? Yeah. You know, a meeting stops and people go, well, let's just pause and think a little bit about what we're saying right. as opposed to racing through an agenda and you know, you never quite complete the agenda and then you're all out of breath and race off to the next thing. Uh, in this day and age, one obvious thing that's changed a lot from uh, when the book was first published is that so much of work is mediated, technologically mediated, you know, people working right. at distance. And one of the big questions, and it's still an open question is, can you really build an effective team at a distance? Uh, and I would say you can build a lot of 
types of cooperation and distance as you need to, but the kind of emotional connection, the kind of knowing each other, uh, trusting each other. You know, really important question today is, you know, can you really build trust through distant mediated uh, interactions? Right. So I, I think if you just take a kind of bit of a skeptical view and a healthy sense of say, well, we have no evidence of that, then the, then the next question becomes, how do we build the better hybrid teams where we use the time when we are together? Yeah. Not just to exchange information. You know, for people to go, a bunch of people to come together to a meeting and look at PowerPoint slides, it's got to be the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> you know, that right. kinda, that's just the exchange of information at, the be- at its best, right? Right. So, so like whenever we organize conferences, and one of the things we've become pretty good at, we know how to organize all kinds of conferences. You know, today people call them unconferences. And that's probably another idea that's kind of passed into the mainstream. You know, when you are face-to-face, use the time for real conversation, reflection, getting to know each other. Doing, you might say doing all the things you can't do well right. at a distance. So that's a big shift. And I would say that shift is, is still unfolding. You know, by necessity, a lot of people are going to try to produce these levels of collaboration and trust and relationship only through mediated, distant interactions. And I think that's uh, that's kind of being people are driven in that direction. But so it's it's not probably probably still, as I say, not much evidence you can do it. Yeah, and I, I think I think for for organizations, I think the mission and the value becomes even more important because that's. Yes a few of the pieces that actually holds holds everyone together even from the distance would you say that's true uh, absolutely i think that it's more important than ever um and also you know the contract has changed to take use that kind of language what i mean by the contract here is the nature of the social contract between an enterprise and, and employees right you know, it used to be there was this model that you know you worked and worked and you you, you, you studied and got a job and you worked, climbed the ladder and you kind of expected to have a career yeah. in a, a particular enterprise and reciprocally although businesses were all over the map how they did this the enterprise had a level of commitment to you yeah um that that contract has changed a lot so uh and i think uh some of that is probably perfectly fine and healthy and natural change process and some of it's not you know people want to care about what they do you know no one wants to waste their time they want to do things they're committed to and and i do think all work is social at yeah. some level so it's not just about me it's about us right. human beings are social animals you know that's why even even though even in a highly individualistic society like the u.s which you know yeah. when you look at the global uh, palette of societies i've only met one or two in my life that i thought were as individualistic as right. the u.s just you know just societies are different just like people are different um even here we love team sports so, you know, so this, this appreciation of people working together is very important. And, and so I think that while the contract may change, the, the, the quality of relationships and people's sense of doing something together, being committed to one another and a task together, again, something bigger than myself. Yeah. As, as I've heard many CEOs say over the years in one way or another, all real commitment is to something bigger than yourself. These are important things because they qualitatively affect us as people and they qualitatively affect our sense of, of our work and our time in work being worthwhile. Well, you, you definitely have tried to bring a lot of people together and have been at the forefront of this, uh, of this trend of obviously systems thinking and organizational learning. Can you tell us briefly about uh, the Society of Organizational Learning 
And then sure. I know, also know that you have uh, an, another organization called the Academy for Systems Change that you've been working on. Can you share a little bit more about those two organizations yeah, and what they, they have do? They have a, a different function. So the Society for Organization Learning, which we typically always just refer to as soul, like the Spanish word for sun, okay. um, <laughs> is, you know, was meant to foster collaboration and building communities of people from different organizations working together. So I use that sustainability consortium was really an illustration. Yeah. You know, that was that was in one particular domain, social environmental kind of well-being and all the story I told you a little while ago about how that was migrating into the mainstream. But the the core idea of, of soul was always fostering collaboration. Yeah. You know, across the boundaries of different organizations. Because it always seemed to me that it's very natural that, you know, you work in this organization or this, you see all the problems and challenges and you, you tend to focus on here, yeah. but you don't realize how much the problems here might be quite common to many other here's. Right. You know, it's, it's like, you know, when people get together in any kind of self-help group, you know, think AA, you know, the very first thing that, that they're trying to help everybody understand is, yeah, I got my story. I have my own kind of challenges, but you know, I'm not alone. Right. You've got a different story and somewhat different challenges, but your challenges and my challenges are really quite similar. Well, someone from Europe once visiting one of his soul meetings had a great analogy. He said, this is like AA for corporations. <laughs> <laughs> they all come here and they talk about their dysfunctional hierarchies and they talk about, you know, their short-termism and the fact that, you know, they really have trouble maintaining a strategic focus with all the pressures on the day-to-day. -day. So in effect, that's kind of what we were after at Seoul. For right. people to start to see that in different organizations, different industries, different technologies, different markets, still there were a deeper set of issues that we were all up against. You might yeah. say the, the prevailing system of management was up against. And so that was the idea of Seoul. And of course, the five disciplines, systems thinking, organizational learning, and all the related tools and approaches were kind of the glue yeah. that held it together. Um, and, and then, you know, the nice thing is to see, you know, over the I would say the last quarter century now almost, a lot of similar efforts. Uh, there's the Presencing Institute, which all uses, you know, similar ideas around Theory U with much more reliance on virtual connectivity and getting people uh, together in big kind of, in effect, what we would, would have traditionally called workshops that involve, you know, 20,000 people around the world in real time. Right. Um, and then you've got appreciative inquiry. Then you've got Bob Keegan's work on immunity change. And many, many f uh, kind of bodies of theory and method have grown up over this last, let's say, three, four decades mm -hmm. um, that all have to do with some common elements. They're about, that's exciting. Maybe we're making some progress, right? <laughs> well, see, I think that's what's hard for people to see. I mean, to just take that for a moment. Uh, it's always hard, it's always easy to see the problems, yeah. right? In ourselves, in the people we live with, and in our society. And of course, we have a media today that makes money basically by, by keeping people in a state of fear because that sells whatever means of attention they're selling, right. whether it's online or print or whatever. So the media tends to kind of reinforce and again, 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 the things that uh, are not working. Yeah. It's really important that we recognize that at the same time, without in any way, being Pollyannish about ignoring the difficulties we face, that there is something going on in the world that, you know, it is an old joke in the technology field. I think it's very appropriate here. The future is already here. It's right. just not, it's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so 
whether you look at social entrepreneurism, which is a huge movement around the world, all these young people going into social enterprises versus for-profit enterprises. Again, the whole entrepreneurial revolution of, you know, you got an idea, go off and do it. Don't talk about it or get a job and hope somebody will let you do it sometime. Right. Um, then you've got um, all the, 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 um, the NGO world. You know, we use this term now, non-governmental organizations, or and it used to be just called nonprofits, but, but that's a movement. You know, Paul Hawken wrote a book 10 years ago, eight years ago, but basically pointed out that there were a million NGOs in Russia oh, and wow. there were actually 2 million in India. Right. And, and that, you know, you go back three or four decades again, there's virtually none. Right. You know, there's a few big names like Red Cross organizations been around a long time, but now there's literally millions, you know, people just trying to go to work to help solve real social issues where they live. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got what I would call the methods and tools. I was, I was rattling off before. Each of those, from appreciative inquiry through presencing and systems thinking organization going on, there's at least a dozen kind of clearly identifiable bodies of tools and methods. Yeah. So what we want to do with the academy was just kind of, kind of beat this drum. This is the Academy of System Change. Yeah, that's a different organization. Change. Yeah. Okay. It, it's really not so much a big organization. It's a small organization, which basically supports a very large network. Like the ones I've been mentioning, people doing this work, um, but tries to draw attention to the fact that there really is a kind of renaissance. I really believe that in the world, uh, and it, you can also look at different domains. A domain for me would be primary and secondary education. A domain would be community organizing. A domain would be business. A domain yeah. would be. Uh, ecological restoration. And when you look deeply in those domains, you'll find a lot of examples. Could you, uh, uh, would you be willing to share an example? I know you've done some work with uh, the elementary schools and some other programs. Can you, uh, it doesn't have to be that example, but. Well, I could take any of the ones I just mentioned. Uh, so uh, in the academy right now, for example, we're trying to get a few, we're doing some experiments with new ways of telling the stories of change. Okay. So we're just finishing up a prototype now of a, of a, a wonderful story about uh, marine restoration, the restoration of a fishery in Mexico, a very difficult area, kind of right adjacent to all the drug trade that comes up from you know Central America, Mexico, up into the U.S. So very destabilized, uh, poor communities, really at risk. Uh, how one particular community really got its act together to restore a fishery and the kind of cultural restoration that was needed to bring about the ecological restoration and to tell the story in text and video and interactive PowerPoint and really blend a bunch of different media together. So that's one of the things we, we do with the Academy. We call it the Interactive Field Book Project. So we have these field books from the old days of uh, system thinking organizational learning, very oriented towards the challenges of the practitioner. Right. But they were all just print. So now we're trying to do it in this multimedia way. Um, in education, you know, at MIT, we've now started in the last year or two um, what was called the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative and tried to bring together all the different people working in, on learning in the, from uh, primary and secondary to higher ed to workplace learning mm -hmm. because there's so much going on at MIT in these different facets. It was an initiative actually started by the president. It's now called the Jamil, this is a funder from Saudi Arabia, Jamil World Education Laboratory. And the guy who's this vice president responsible for this whole thing 
he had just come back from these course goes around the world visiting different people doing innovative stuff in education and he used a phrase which really struck me i used it myself a few minutes ago he said you know when you really travel around the world look what's going on in education there's a kind of renaissance and i sat there and went hmm, interesting um because again we're all very aware of the problems in our schools because we tend to naturally see the problems what we don't see is all the innovation that's going on um, the social emotional learning movement has been a huge movement worldwide. We try to counterbalance the excessive emphasis on, you know, math and science, all of which is very important. But, you know, you got great kids in math and science who don't know how to work together. Yeah. They're not going to be very useful in the business world because right. everybody works in teams. Right. So to really balance the technical skills and the social emotional skills, really, really important. There's a whole movement on systems education. You know, showing that young children particularly have extraordinary native intelligence or innate intelligence in understanding complexity, right. interdependence. We grow up in families. Right. We live in a world of interdependence. Um, but then school kind of beats it out of us. Right. Uh, so that's another kind of facet of the Renaissance. Um, and a lot of what we work on, not surprisingly, is kind of the, the management and leadership part of that. Yeah. Because, you know, how you create a, a climate and a culture in school that really is about continuous learning for everybody. Because school, you know, the mainstream schools, I think they've always been somewhat like this and generally gotten much worse in the last couple of decades, have this irony. They say they're all about learning, but none of the people who work there feel like they're immersed in a learning environment. Right. They're, they're busy, they're under extraordinary pressure. They feel almost totally uh, uh, not unappreciated. Mm -hmm. You know, teachers say, you know, we race to get through the curriculum over the course of the year. No reflection, right. no environment they work with that encourages reflection and collaboration. Now, that's those are all generalities, and for every one of those, you can find lots of exceptions. Yeah, and those exceptions are right here in this country as well as other elsewhere. Um, we have a big project, for example, right now with the international baccalaureate schools. Now, that's a very interesting network. It's one of the few truly global networks in primary and secondary education. Mm -hmm. I always thought they were just elite schools, like if you were a diplomat stationed, you know, in Afghanistan or, you know, in Africa somewhere. You put your kid into an IB, International Baccalaureate School, right. so they would get a high-quality education. Well, that's true, but most of their schools in the United States are in urban districts. Most of their right. programs, like Chicago Public Schools, has a ton of IB programs. And, and they're really quite interesting because very high standards academically. With a very strong social mission. Yeah. The mission of the IB network, and it's over 6,000 schools in over 140 countries, is to create peaceful global citizens. Right. That's their purpose. So, kind of hidden in plain sight are all these wonderful examples of, again, the very changes we know are needed, not just intellectually, hypothetically, people writing books, people doing it. Well, the world is definitely in more need of servant leadership than ever. And if we can get our, our children uh, collaborating more in school, then when they go into the, the workforce, then uh, it'll kind of uh, get into there too, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I, that, was, that was where Jay eventually came to. Because <laughs> he started bugging me a long time ago. Why spend so much time working in business, you know? Go upstream, yeah. you know, start with the kids. And I think you gotta do both. I mean, but yes, it's terribly important to go upstream. And, you know, try to plant the right kind of seeds uh, in, you know, in young human beings yeah. who are in many ways very predisposed to these ideas. Yeah. You know, I don't think fairness is something that you have to teach culturally. Right. I think fairness is, and the sense of fairness is something that's innate. 
Uh, I remember when our oldest son was six, he, he came home repeatedly after school one day talking about how one of the kids in his school couldn't go to recess because the kid had so much energy, the teacher would make him stay in during recess. Right. He said, this is crazy. If anybody in the world needs to go to recess, it's Jimmy. <laughs> and the unfairness of this was so evident to him. Right. So again, I think that you know we don't have an education system that really cultivates human beings. And if yeah. we did, we'd start to notice that a lot of what is needed is there, but of course it does need to be developed. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, spending your time with us today, Peter, and for uh, continuing to put out great work and uh, create these organizations that are helping to change the world. Peter, we're going to ask you to share a specific servant leadership practice. Oh. And um, before we do that, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that they can still get the servant leadership training kit while these talks are going on. And that gives you access to all the downloadable recordings. There's 40 talks. Every speaker has amazing tips and ideas and practices. And while the summit's going, you can get that for $297. You could also get the transcripts and uh, many of the speakers have contributed a bonus. So I highly encourage you to do that. Now, um, now coming, uh, well, before I, before I get to your practice, um, you actually wrote the foreword for Robert uh, Greenleaf's book, A Life of Servant Leadership. Uh, and so uh, as a bonus, what we're going to do is you can click the link below and get that, um, the forward of that book that uh, Peter wrote uh, here. And uh, now let's ask you, Peter, I know you have a lot of practices and you're a, a meditator, is that right? Mm -hmm. And you have, and, you, and then you, you bridge into the corporate world and you work with some of the largest uh, organizations in the world and you have uh, work with academics. And um, so you have probably a toolbox that's probably larger than anybody. <laughs> So would you just share one practice that, that people listening to, to this might be able to implement in their business or life that you think would make a difference for them? Yeah. Well, the first is just to, to underscore something that's in, implicit in your question, which is why, is why are practices so important? Yeah. You know, at some level or at some point in our lives, probably all of us heard from mother or father or grandmother or grandfather, practice practice, practice, right? right? It is the way human beings learn. Okay. I think we often, particularly in this day and age, it's probably even gotten worse. We think once we read it or once we've got that idea, once we got the information, we've learned it. No, we've learned about it. Right. But you didn't learn to walk by listening to somebody talk about walking or read all about it, right? right. You learned it by walking. You learned to ride bicycles, by bicycling, and so on and so forth. So practices are at the heart of learning. So if you ever, whenever you get enthused or kind of passionate or committed about something you think needs to change, the obvious question to ask is, well, what are some of the practices we can use? Yeah. Um, and, and practices that support servant leadership, to me, support reflection, which is another way of saying thinking about your thinking. They support um, collective or collaborative reflection, which is how do we pause and kind of look at our own thinking? How do we pay attention to how we're paying attention? Right. Um, so one simple one that's, that's become um, so basic, I'll give, I'll give two real quickly that have become very basic in a lot of the, practice, a lot of the um, settings we work is, is just check-ins. So you start a meeting by going around the table and just hearing a little bit where each person's at. It's like the simplest practice there is. Uh, maybe it takes 10 minutes. Yep. But you know, it gives people a space to say, you know, I'm really worried about my daughter. She was sick when I left home. 
You say, well, what does that have to do with the reason for the meeting? Right. Well, it has nothing to do with the reason for the meeting, but it's on my mind. And if I can't, if I can say it and people can go, oh, I understand. Do you want to check in with her in the middle of the meeting? All of a sudden, I, I can give a little more of my attention. Yeah to what we're trying to do. So check-in is just a little open space where everybody can say what they want. And of course, the other thing that's important about it is that you go around the circle. So everybody has, you know, a couple of minutes to check yeah. in. So all the things that keep some people dominating meetings, other people not saying anything, you kind of sidestep all that by creating an equal space for every single person. Once the practice starts to get ingrained, then you find people in the middle of a very tough meeting will say, hey, let's stop and do a check-in. Right. Because we're kind of stuck here. Yeah. And, and maybe if we just listen a little bit, how does each person feel right now? Um, another practice that's become really useful and one that's very well documented on the Presencing Institute website, we always call them learning journeys. Uh, if you go to the Presencing Institute, so that's P-R-E, you know, like the word presence, made a gerund, I-N-G, Presencing yeah. Institute. Um, you'll find what they call sensing journeys. Okay. So in getting a group of people working together about a complex uh, issue, oftentimes we've got data, we've got our stories, we've got all our kind of internalized view, but to go together to see different parts of the system firsthand, talk to people. In, um, in the early days of the quality movement, they used to call their go there, see that. Right. So to get out of the conceptual and out of just looking at data and, and really feel the reality, that's why the term sensing journey, really feel the reality that different people in different parts of a system are yeah. experiencing and to do it together. Right. So when we were building the, the, the food lab network initially, we had a lot of social activists, a lot of environmental activists, and then we had a bunch of corporate people. Right. So for, for them as a group to go to a farmer cooperative, which no corporate person had ever been to. They know all about farmer cooperatives, but they don't know how they actually work. Right. Or for them to go together to a corporate marketing office mm -hmm. where people are trying to create a market uh, for more sustainably grown agriculture. Right. So in any complex system, the only thing you know for sure is none of us see all of it. Right. You could, you could be 100% sure of that statement. How do we build some shared direct understanding? of different parts of the system. That's proven such a winner over the years um, that it's, it's really become integrated. That Food Lab Network, which is now about uh, 80 of the world's largest food companies and NGOs working together on sustainable agriculture, whenever they have a meeting anywhere in the world, they do meet all around the world, they always add an extra day for a sensing journey. Hmm. They go and hang out with the farmers there, or they go hang out with somebody in the government there who's trying to promote sustainable agriculture. And they do it in a way that, again, you go together with people who have different backgrounds, see something in common, but then you have time afterwards yeah. to share what you saw because everybody sees something different. Yeah. So it's not only you know, a, a field trip. Yeah. It's a reflective field trip. Yeah. So that's very well documented in, on the PI website, uh, the Presidency website, so it's another good practice. Well, thank you. Those are two powerful practices, and I think um... – both require us to probably slow down just a little bit and to see the importance of how either of those practices actually creates more connection and then we can actually have greater results. So it's a little counterintuitive. <laughs> well, you know, things are way too urgent to be rushed. Right. <laughs> so slowing down part is really important today. So on behalf of the uh, Servant Leadership Online Training Summit, uh, Barrett Kohler, Conscious Marketer, 
uh, the Ken, Ken Blanchard. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience today. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in to this, this special talk and for making servant leadership a priority in your life and business. And we will see you on the next training call. Thank you. Thank you for attending the Servant Leadership Online Training Summit. To own the Servant Leadership Training Kit, including 40 videos, full transcripts, and over 35 speaker bonuses at a 40% discount, click the upgrade button now. This special offer is limited and available only during the summit, so act now. Thank you.